welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Well, I, I, there's something on my mind, but I want to wait till we introduce our guest. Oh, okay. Should we should we do sponsors before or, uh, should, or after? Uh, uh, yeah, I feel like I, I always feel like uh, I want to have something interesting before the sponsors so that people don't tune out right away. Sure. Absolutely. But I don't know. Well, Maybe we can alternate nothing. words I so that nothing. we can talk about our guest mixed in with sponsorship stuff. That way they can't, they can't skip past it. No, I think that did it. You, oh, okay. You there we go. <laughs> um, okay. So we do have two sponsors, everybody. Uh, this episode as always is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent international and classic films. Everyday movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy all for only four 99 a month. Plus when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently showing on movie is Michael Powell's the edge of the world, which I don't think I ever actually saw. Um, We've seen a number. I've seen a number of other Michael Powell films, but I don't think I ever saw Edge of the World. I don't think I did either. And uh, if it's Michael Powell, I'm interested. I think he's a wonderful director that I feel like even still is not talked about that much. Like I mean, you know, Criterion has I mean, really gotten behind him, and I guess so. Maybe yeah. You know, I mean, you got Martin Scorsese on a couple of uh, you know, a couple of commentary tracks. That's it. That's it. But thankfully, Mubi is uh, championing him. And, you know, I will say this um, real quick. Uh, so Mubi has uh, renewed their sponsorship. So I wanted to go into maybe a bit more detail because uh, I read this thing every week. Oh, because now, now they've earned it. <laughs> um, no, it's just I, and I feel this way about uh, all of our sponsors is that we'd certainly appreciate uh, their sponsoring of the episode. But at the same time. I do want to try and personalize it a little bit. Uh, the reason that we like movie, the reason that I like movie is because it is this curated thing. Um, it is not right. Netflix and it's, it's such a cliche thing to say, but it happens to me every time I go to Netflix. Uh, it's just like, Oh, I'm going to watch something. And then I, it's like, and then I w- spend about 15 minutes trying to figure something out. I was like, I'm just going to watch a stand up special. Um, <laughs> just cause it, which is what you do when you can't decide what you're going to watch for reals. Um, and so the 30, the 30 movie thing that movie does is something that I admire. And invariably when I go to their website, it's full of movies that I, that most of which I have not either heard of, or I have heard of and haven't seen like they're, I feel like they're putting a lot of effort into... And so you're intrigued. I'm intrigued. Yeah. And I feel like it's... They're movies that that I wouldn't think to watch. You know, partially because I hadn't heard of them, uh, some of them. And other in other cases, like, you know, when you're scrolling through Netflix, you're not going to see these movies pop up. And so I like what movie does, and that's one of the reasons that I'm happy, not merely because they pay us, but one of the reasons that I'm happy that they chose to sponsor us and why I'm, why I feel particularly honored that they do so. Uh, thanks, Mubi. Thanks, Mubi. And you can thank Mubi. Indeed. And us by following these instructions. Indeed. You can try Mubi free for a month. That's just for you, BP listeners. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash battleship to redeem now. And we do have another sponsor. Very uh, exciting. And this is uh, the Movie Meltdown podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Movie Meltdown, a weekly discussion of film regularly featuring special guests. Past guests include, listen to this, David. These guys blow us out of the water. Yeah, they, 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 they. Stop they, listening to this and then yeah. go listen to the people that gave us money. They land some big fish, those guys. Malcolm McDowell, Lance Henriksen, Michael Gross, 
and oddly enough, that's the one that excites me the most yes. of those. Uh, and BP friend of the show, Pat Healy. So we've got that at right. least. Yeah. Um, and if that wasn't enough, now this is an, uh, something that struck me as, as interesting. They've officially adopted, and uh, it was, she was named Queen of the Indies by the New Yorker, uh, Jess Wexler. Okay. Or I don't know if that's how you say the last name, but she was in Teeth, okay. uh, The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, uh, uh, Alexander the Last, and a semi-regular cast member on The Good Wife, um, which I don't watch, but you do. I guess I you don't I've, watch it anymore. I but, will. I'll get back to it. Okay. Although I'm hearing not great things about this current season. I'm hearing Jeffrey Dean Morgan is great. Hey, well, the of course rest he is. Of the show has uh, fallen off a little bit. He's but going. That's not, they're not a sponsor. Oh, that's true. They're not. Um, but anyway, uh, so she shows up pretty regularly, and so she's sort of a, a, a recurring uh, guest on on uh, Movie Meltdown. So, um, so to hear these guests and others and uh, just regular episodes as well, go to moviemeltdown.com or click on the uh, on the ad at battleshippretension.com. So those are our sponsors. Thank you. We appreciate them greatly. And our guest is our guest. He's given us no money. He, David. he needs no introduction. Well, I guess you could say he merits no introduction because he's given us no money. Indeed. <laughs> womp womp. <laughs> um, no, uh, our next guest is Battleship Retention Editor at Large, Scott Nye. Hey, I'm no Lance Hen- Henriksen, but I'll do. <laughs> That's right. You'll do what? Up here on this podcast, oh, apparently, okay. on a Sunday. Like, he certainly won't do I that. I mean, like, st- stand-in work uh, for Lance Hendrickson. Hey, um, now and again. Now, before we get into the topic this week, have you guys heard that someone has dared to remake the most precious and sacred movie of all time, <laughs> the greatest, the holy grail of all movies, Memento? Can you believe someone would have the gall to dare touch the unassailable Christopher Nolan's memento. How are you guys dealing with this snooze? <laughs> Wait, I think, I think it, you're with, slurring with, together this. And yeah, news, I was really, yeah. Say, this <laughs> cement news. Um, uh, yeah. That might have been a Freudian thing. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't feel the way you do about it. Uh, I certainly don't feel the way you seem to think other people feel about it. Um, but, uh, more than anything, I am surprised. Um, I feel like, you know, I'm not surprised that they remade total recall or RoboCop or, or point break or anything like that. 25 years does seem to be the point at which something becomes feasible to be remade. But I think what gets me is, what gets me and it doesn't even so much bother me again it just confuses me that it's made by a filmmaker who is still cranking out content Mm -hmm. starring actors like guy pierce who's still appearing in things i guess it just because of that it still seems like a relevant movie people are going to watch the batman movies which means they'll arrive at memento pretty quickly and i don't know i so that's what gets me is just I mean, anything can be remade and, and, and everything will be remade eventually. Yeah. Uh, it just, it seems I, fast to me. I think you make good points and that would be my reaction, except my reaction is eclipsed by the internet's just pearl clutching, losing their shit I over. I can't believe they would dare uh, with this movie. Like that's, that flabbergasts me more. Sure. It's <laughs> like, I look, Memento's great. It's my favorite Christopher Nolan movie, but it is not some sacred cow. Who they're knows if it'll even happen? <laughs> right. Sure, yeah, they acquired the rights to it, yes. and they yeah. also are theoretically remaking Dolce Vita, the same company is. Hmm. And, right. like, I don't think that's going to happen either. Like, 
it's just uh, it's a nice press release. It got people angry for a day. We'll see if they end up doing anything with it. Yeah, yeah. I, but I was st- I was really I was just surprised. You, you said it got people angry. I was surprised that anyone got angry about it. Oh sure. I mean, people get angry because it's you know it's and I, I I almost wonder if it's people of a very specific age, which is to say, it's I'll our bet, age. <laughs> Our age, and maybe even a couple years younger, like people for whom, because that was 2001 that people saw it. In we were, any in, kind we of were in college. So we were in college. We were in high school. It was probably a big deal. Yeah. It, like it probably shaped the way, like if somebody said, oh, we're going to remake LA Confidential, which could happen. Um, yeah. LA that, Confidential that, to me, that would me, be less was, surprising because it's based on a book. So it's just like, we're going to sure, adapt the sure. book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, there are the movies that kind of form the way you look at movies from then on, even if you move beyond that, that film. And so I wouldn't be surprised if it's people that are like 31, uh, or right. 30, like really just a couple years before us, yeah. uh, after us, pardon me. Yeah. And I'm trying to uh, what mine would be, I think that the problem is I'm too jaded to get up in arms about anyone remaking anything, but I guess like train spotting, maybe if someone remade, remade, train, made train, made train spot. If you bought that sequel, um, well, it's, Irvin Welsh is involved. Right. So pretty much uh, everyone is. Yeah. I guess yeah. it's, um, sanctioned. I don't know. I, right. I mean, again, I'm a jaded person, so I feel like it probably won't be good. Well, yeah, but, uh, it's not going to ruin train spotting, which is right. still a movie that I, that is uh, formative for me. And I feel like, train- now you're a, you're a bit younger. Were you, were you, yeah, Memento was a pretty big deal. I didn't see it in theaters. I was about, 14, 15 when it came out? No, it came out in 2000, so I was 14. So my parents didn't let me see it. Okay. But I saw it within a couple of years. And yeah, it was a pretty big deal for me. And I think the fear is that some remakes do overtake the original. And I think people are always scared that they're like hard work and investment in one movie what? Yeah. will just be like trampled on. What is an example? Uh, the Thing. Sure. Um, the Fly, you know, along this, a lot of those 80s remakes kind of just trampled the 50s ones. Yeah. I guess, I guess that's just generational, though, right? But how many... I don't even think at the time, like... But what I'm saying is, like, the people who uh, hold the thing up as one of the greatest people, greatest movies of all time, um, if it weren't for John Carpenter's movie, would those people have come to the original of the thing, or would those people just not have seen it? That's what I, that's what I feel like. Maybe, I feel like but... The, and the people who are going to see this, if this Memento movie gets made, are not the people who... It's it's right, but they come along and reshape the canon, and so eventually, a movie like The Thing is more important culturally than The Thing from Another World. Whereas okay. Memento could stay, you know, an important movie, sure, but this new one could overtake it. Okay, it could, I'm not I, saying I agree with it. I'm not saying it's right. I also don't. I mean, I'm I, just saying that I think that's the psychology of it. And you know, but I do also wonder if it's a situation where, you know, The Fly is such a tonally different film. Right. And the, the nature of the story one is, Oh, it's this instant transformation. Whereas the other is a disintegration. Like he's bringing such new things that I, I feel like they're, I feel like I would go to, uh, the original fly and the new one for completely different things. Totally. Whereas like the new RoboCop or, or whatever, it's still kind of trying to do the same thing. Right. And I feel like something like train spotting or memento, um, they're made with such a distinct style mm-hmm. and memento, especially the story is so linked to the way that it's told. Would the next filmmaker try to make it that way? Or I don't know. It's, 
because yeah, if you do it also, any other way, what's the point? It's also such a pure good idea that was done so well yeah. that it's like there's really nothing you could do except to make an entirely different movie from that premise. I mean, you can make a comedy out of it pretty well, I think. Sure. But <laughs> a straight ahead thriller. Wasn't that like, Clean Slate with Dana Carvey? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot I'm older than you. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's and more than anything, I'm not angry because who cares uh you know i still have it uh and it was still formative for me and it was and people will still find it because of christopher nolan but at the same time uh i'm just i'm confused do you think maybe they want to remake it just so they can put it a dvd you don't have to solve a puzzle to watch (laughs) (laughs) the dvd is nice but it is a nightmare I, yeah. think, I think it's real you, cute if, the first time yeah. and then it's just and like, like oh, just, if you just select C like eight times, it just plays. I think that's what I think. That's <laughs> I how really I, can't even remember. It's been so long. It's yeah. like taking a, a scantron test. If you just select C, you, <laughs> right. you'll get like a B plus. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, people who don't have that DVD don't know what we're talking about. Um, but yeah, you got to solve a puzzle, a number of puzzles. to. And DVDs were weird for a while there. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. There are Easter uh, eggs on DVDs. They don't really do that anymore. It's just like, guys, we we advertise oh, yeah, animated right. reviews. You'd like find weird angles and like yeah. a special features menu. Yeah, I know like the Moulin Rouge DVD has a bunch where it like if you're using like the scroll thing and you yeah. go you go left when it looks like there's nothing left, right. suddenly like Kylie Minogue's Green Fairy thing <laughs> will appear and yeah. it'll show you some sort of behind the scenes thing. Yeah, I forgot about What's that. It's fun. Why'd that go away? Um I don't know. Seems like you can make it harder with Blu-rays, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hey, it'd be fun if Criterion decided that it's, or Kino. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we're going to have some Easter eggs. Or finally. if we find out that they have been all along, we just haven't. <laughs> just nobody's looked. <laughs> um, all right. Nobody ever clicks on color bars. If they did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, you guys, I got to tell you real quick about tweakedaudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors. Uh, and I, when I say styles, I mean styles. And when I say colors, <laughs> I mean colorful and they sound great. And they look great, and they're available at a low, low price over at, tweak, at tweakedaudio.com. But uh, if you uh, pay attention a little bit longer, if you go to tweakedaudio.com, and then at the end, after you've selected your low, low price, stylish, colorful, great-sounding earbuds, and you're at the checkout uh, counter, as it were, uh, you put in the offer code pretension, you'll get one-third off that already low, low price and no shipping charges. So just remember, tweakedaudio.com, offer code pretension. My girlfriend just bought those exact earbuds, and she's very happy with her purchase. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right. Uh, let's get hey, into it, shall we? Real quick. When you were talking about tweaked audio, either a moment ago or several moments ago, um, you said styles, which got like me thinking Wolf? of Teen Wolf. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I thought, if they made Memento into a TV show... Now I'm uh, I'm more on board. Now I get it. It'd be like it'd be zany. The Fugitive or the Hulk, where he's just going town to town, yeah, getting into all the people's lives, but not- then he forgets it all every time. <laughs> or like a fun miniseries. That'd be cool. Isn't this the sort of blind spot? You're the TV guy. 
Uh, yeah, I haven't watched Blind Spot. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's the tattoos. Yeah, right? but she doesn't oh, have yeah. short-term memory loss. Right, she just has like a block of time that's gone, right? No. Yeah. yeah. See, it, it, what you could do with Memento as a premise for um, a TV show is basically do a, do a show where every episode is a pilot because, <laughs> because the premise of the show could completely change right. because he has no idea what he's just done. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> this thing... <laughs> Go like, and viewers could jump on it at any point. Yeah. They wouldn't need to yeah. keep track. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Um, like I said, let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Uh, we're, we have a bunch of stuff to talk about because so Scott, Scott and I, Scott and I and I. Um, what, a ter- were, what a terrible last name. I know. Have. We're both at um, the AFI Film Fest. Mm-hmm. Now, now you, wait. That's not the complete title. I'm sorry. Don't the stop there. Is AFI Fest 2015 presented by Audi. Um, uh, I so wish I want to go back. I've never wanted to like edit out and go back and redo a take. I really wish I had said sob. I thought that would, I think that would have been funny <laughs> if I had, uh, damn it. Why did I not think of that two seconds beforehand? Ugh. AFI Fest 2015 presented by sob would have right. gotten, Oh, that would have made my day. Let's move on. Enough that. of your sob story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, now Scott, you were actually covering it. Yeah. Um, whereas I was just attending as an attendee. Just a I, tourist. I still wrote reviews because uh, that's what I do. Because they can't stop you. They can't stop me. Um, so you saw a lot more stuff than yeah, I did. too much stuff. I think I have eight and you have approximately 800 movies. Yeah, that's about right. Um, so Strap in, real quick, listeners. Let me over the course you, of how many days? Uh, six, I think. Yeah. Okay. I've asked this before. I'm going to ask it again. Okay. So how many movies did you see in six days? I think 21. Okay. Well, some of these I saw beforehand at screenings and a couple I saw after. Okay. But even so, I recognize that the nature of a film festival is just, you're just watching movies all day. Right. But I do often wonder when you get to the last movie of every day, you're probably tired and you've, and you've gone on probably an emotional roller coaster of these other movies here and there. Do you find yourself not judging the movie or anything like that, but just maybe not being able to give the movie what it might require because you've already given so much that day. Um, I mean, I see a lot of movies just in the course of my life and I'm often quite exhausted Mm -hmm. (laughs) by the time I get around to them. I guess it's the same as with any other situation like that. You kind of get to like, Especially if it's a two-hour movie, because it gets to like the hour ten mark, and you're like, "Come on, <laughs> we can wrap this conversation up, right, guys?" Um, but that's not the festival thing necessarily. It right. happens there, but it happens in a lot of other places too. I've never done like a, a, a real film festival, so I've never seen. You know, the closest I come are those commentaries that we record. <laughs> um, but. And you know what? By that last one, oh, I'm yeah. pretty loopy. Now, admittedly, we have to talk the whole time. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's it sounds like something to be exhilarating, but also by the end of it, just oh, okay, I'm I'm tired now. Yeah. There's a reason I took off the last day of the festival. Mm. They weren't screening as much that day anyway. Yeah. And if something I really wanted to see was playing, I would have gone. But I was just like, yeah, take a day. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the stuff you saw. We're gonna go uh, alphabetically. Yeah. Um, Starting with the one numeric title, why don't yes. you why don't you uh, take the reins from for here from here? That numeric title is Forty Five Years, directed by Andrew Haig. I want to say, how do we feel about that? Uh, yeah, I've never, I, I haven't come down uh, uh, on how to. Well, is he is he Scottish? I don't know. 
I was assumed it was British because both his movies are British. Yeah, I guess hey just looks Scottish. It does me. look Scottish now that you mention it. Um, anyway, I, I'm going to say hey, you say Haig. That way we're covered. <laughs> it's a British movie, but I didn't see it. Starring Charlotte Gainsbourg and Tom Courtney. Charlotte Rampling. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I yes. typed Gainsbourg here. I don't know why, mm. but it is Charlotte Rampling. Thank okay. you for catching me on that. For a moment, I was, um, I was just like, hang on a second. Yeah. <laughs> no, she acts that. too, right? <laughs> <laughs> She's one of them actor people. <laughs> Um, so this has a wonderful premise that is introduced quite soon in the movie. It's a very short movie, actually. It takes place over the course of a week, which is only 90 minutes. Um, and within the first five or so, we find out, uh, so Charlotte Rampling and Tom Courtney are married. They're about to celebrate their 45th anniversary when Tom Courtney finds out that the woman he was in love with in his early twenties, who he, we find out later would have married if not for the fact that she died, her body was found preserved perfectly in ice. Mm. And so he's aged this whole time. Not really. We kind of suss out talking about her with uh, his wife and not really dwelling on the impact this tragedy had on him. But she has, you know, remained perfectly preserved. So he sort of loosely starts to explore the possibility of going to see her body and really starts to dwell on this uh, incident that he's never talked about before. Or at least very briefly, he has this. There's this wonderful little aside where, when he finds out the news, he's like, "Oh, I'm sure I told you about this." As though he's already trying to defend himself against, you know, any accusations or any impropriety. And the whole movie is very much him trying to uh, keep up appearances, but it's told from her perspective and her constantly trying to read him and figure out the degree to which this relationship that they've had for so long has actually meant anything to him, or well, whether he's been dwelling on this woman forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so beautifully told. I wasn't wild about Weekend, uh, Andrew Haig's last movie, but this is, I think, a huge step up and huh. hugely moving. And it comes out at the end of December. And I really hope people check it out. I thought Weekend, Andrew Hayes' last movie <laughs> was very good, actually. Okay. I did have a question. So 45 years is being talked about a lot from a best actress standpoint. Yeah, I have her in the draft, so I hope okay. that works out. And solely... You know this. We don't talk much about. Uh, David well, doesn't let us talk about yes, the draft. You, on here. you know this 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 fantasy award season thing that we do is a lot of fun, and it has a lot of things in common with fantasy sports. Mm-hmm. One of those things it's is that no one else gives a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to spend too much time talking talking about, talking about talking about our. But you know, we can't talk about the awards in general. Yeah, sure. Which seemed to be where Tyler was going. Well, and the thing that that, that always fascinates me is that. I mean, this definitely sounds like Tom Courtney is given some really good stuff to do oh, absolutely. As, a, as an actor, and yet he's not being mentioned at all. I think for for lead or supporting. Well, they recently at first they were toying with putting putting him supporting, and they recently said he was going to go lead. But it's one of those things where the actor competition every year is viewed as more competitive because there are so many roles for men. Yeah, um, and his role is like bordering on supporting, and he has some good stuff to get into. And if it was told from his perspective, I think there'd be no question. But because we're always looking at him from her point of view, yeah. there's a little bit of standing outside that performance. It works really well for the movie, but from a campaign perspective, it gets tough. It would be... It would be um, I like Tom Courtney, and I feel like it's anytime I see him in like a, a significant role, I'm excited. And I, I like Charlotte Rampling as well, and it just sounds like both of them... I guess because I just... Uh, in what I've read about it, she gets so much press 
because there's the award thing mm-hmm. uh, that I feel like he's being minimized. So I guess I just assume this is her movie all the way. And I mean, he's not really doing much. I wouldn't say he's not doing much at all. Yeah. He's giving a very fine performance that is not the center of the movie. And so even outside of awards, I would talk about her first. Absolutely. Okay. All the way. Okay. Moving on. Yeah. Uh, so next up is Anomalisa, which is the new movie from Charlie Kaufman, which is one of those that even though they had done a Kickstarter campaign for it like years ago, I completely forgot it existed until the festival season kind of ramped up. Um, but it's co-directed by him and Duke Johnson, who directed like the stop motion stuff for Community and I think some mm. other stuff. And it's produced by the same studio that uh, did the stop motion stuff for Community. So like uh, Starburns from Community is a producer on Anomalisa, <laughs> which is pretty wonderful. It's very strange. Um but yes, this is, I think, maybe Charlie Kaufman's most straight ahead movie, his most kind of human movie. It doesn't it has a central construct, which is that everyone in this world, the, the lead character is voiced by David Thewlis, um, but everyone else is voiced by Tom Noonan. Mm-hmm. And but that's the film's only construct. It doesn't have like it kind of teases at some sort of larger sci fi element, but doesn't have like the hook that Synecdoche or Eternal Sunshine or any of those other movies did. Um, so it really becomes a focus on the sadness that pervades a lot of Charlie Kaufman movies. Um, the third voice in the movie is Jennifer Jason Lee, who provides this character named Lisa and is this voice that stands out from all the rest, obviously, and to which David Lewis instantly latches onto and kind of, he seizes the answer to all his dreams, but it is a Charlie Kaufman movie. So <laughs> maybe she isn't so much. Um, but I like that he kind of got away from, the constructs that can kind of get him bogged down sometimes. I feel like, even though I mean, I'm a huge fan of his movies, but it's interesting to see him focus so much on the sadness and so much on kind of the depression, depressing toll of everyday life. That was sort of the focus of Synecdoche, but there was so much else going on in that movie that you know you could get drowned in that. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee was in attendance at the festival. I know because I was in line behind her at the concession stand. <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> at one point. I well, saw this what was she a... getting? I want to know. Uh, I don't know. Mm. No, I saw it at the screening, so I don't know who was there for it. I think Kaufman was there and some others, but yeah, um, that one comes out early December, I want to say, and Paramount I, uh, picked it up hoping for an uh, animated award, and I'm sure they'll get at least get a nomination, but I'm so... I so badly want to talk about the draft now because <laughs> <laughs> oh, somebody said so pick anomalies yeah. for thinking uh, it was going to sweep please, the Oscars. Let's please move on. <laughs> All right. It has good technical stuff in it. It's got sure. good sound design. Um, but yeah, uh, I also reviewed that one for the site and 45 years actually. So if people want to see more thoughts on that, they should Indeed. check that out. Um, the next movie played at the festival again, didn't see it at the festival, but it was the closing night film, which was the big short directed by Adam mm. McKay, uh, starring Christian Bale, Ryan Gosling, Steve Carell, Brad Pitt, Melissa Leo, Marissa Tomei, and a couple of very fine supporting performances by uh, Finn Whitrock and John Magaro. Um, I like that Finn Whitrock. Yeah, I realized afterwards that I have seen him in a lot of stuff, but I just forgot about him until now. <laughs> um, but he and John Magaro, who are kind of, the film is about sort of, the ramp up to the huge housing crisis and the crash of the economy in which a few investors saw what was coming and bet against the American economy and made out big on it. Um, and it's about those investors kind of figuring it out. And the film kind of toes the line where it wants you to be like rooting for them because it's kind of them uncovering this great injustice. But at the same time, we know all along <laughs> that they're going to get rich off of it. So yeah. I never found it uh, 
quite that sympathetic, which they had a Q and a after the screening I saw and they were like really pushing. They're like, yeah, we really felt like we walked a fine line. I never got that. I was always laughing at or hoping those guys would secretly <laughs> fail in some way, <laughs> but that's just the anti-capitalist to me. Adam, <laughs> uh, Adam McKay is oddly preoccupied with that. Yeah. Like um, at the end of the other guys, yeah. when it, when it incorporates all this, all this stuff about like, oh, do you realize what these fat cats did? And I remember like, well, is that the story you were telling? Wait, what? Where does it was this like come from? Kind of loosely associated with the story, yeah. Yeah. And so when I when I heard about this film, and then I saw that he directed it, everybody else was like, that's very strange. And I thought, no, I uh, apparently this is something he was really passionate about. So much so that he tacked it onto a movie that it had virtually nothing to do with. Uh, but is it? Is it funny? It is in parts. I think uh, Whitrock and Megaro really find the balance between being a little ridiculous and also being kind of a, anchoring a dramatic story. Uh, the rest of the actors, they probably would have benefited the movie to pick up some more comedians. Mm. Steve Carell does fine, but he's kind of flailing, honestly. Mm. Uh, and the movie as a whole is produced by Plan B, and they were the ones who initiated the project, and then they hired Adam McKay, which is a strange choice to begin with. Um, it wasn't something McKay initiated. And huh. so it's kind of walking that line between trying to be a prestige drama and trying to be a little more out there comedically. And it has some moments that really work, but the rest is, I mean, it's so expositional. There's so much you know, kind of financial jargon they have to work into it to even make it make sense. That it gets, and a lot of people are really high on it. I've been noticing, but I yeah, have a I've tough time hanging things. with it. Yeah. Um, at the Q and A afterwards, Adam McKay talked about some ideas that are in the movie that I won't spoil because they're among the more delightful surprises. But he really wanted to kind of branch out and do like a kind of free form assault on not only the financial system but the modern media. Which, if he had gone like full Donzo Anchorman with it, sounded like could have been pretty awesome. Yeah. But there's so they keep coming back to these like dramatic arcs that Christian Bale or, or Steve Carell have to go through. And Steve Carell has this like tragic backstory that never really lands dramatically. It's just, there's so much going on in the movie and it never really finds the right tone that it wants to strike. Hmm. But that's just my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) You should say that after after every movie. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Um, next on the list is blood of my blood, which is an Italian movie about what is this movie about? Um, every movie in the middle of the, every festival in the middle of the festival, you end up seeing some movie that just works in the schedule. And I'm like, I probably should just have a long lunch. Um, <laughs> this is sort of about, uh, some Catholic priests in what I will loosely call old timey times <laughs> that are, uh, doing a witch hunt. And so okay. we're like, oh, boo, a witch hunt. But then about midway through the movie, we're like, maybe there is some witches in this world. <laughs> and it eventually fast forwards to the modern times and has a vampire storyline. And this guy who's been alive all these centuries between the two. And it's a pretty interesting idea from a screenplay standpoint. It is horribly directed. Um, it's all shot with this gray filter and it has a lot of terrible chanting music. A friend of mine who was at the screen too was like, it felt like a video game trailer at the lot of the time (laughs) where you have that kind of like depleted color palette Uh and you know, the kind of ominous vaguely choral music in the background and a lot of slow motion shots. And it's just a drag. (laughs) 
Um, it doesn't have distribution. I hope it never does. <laughs> <laughs> wow, man. <laughs> Good turn there at the end. Um, so let's move on to bigger and better things, which is Angelina Jolie's By the Sea, which is... First off, I will say a wonderful movie. I did not like her last movie, Unbroken, very much. Um, did you see her first one? I did not. That was In the Land of Blood and Honey, yeah. which is a foreign language film. It was nominated for the Golden Globe in that category. Yeah, it's not that great. Yeah, that's what I heard. And after Unbroken, I was like, yeah, probably good. It re- your review, though, remains one of the most commented on posts in BattleshipRetention.com history. Oh, that's boy. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did not know I was tapping into something when <laughs> yeah. I just reviewed that forgettable film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm in the same boat as you, Scott, on I didn't see that one and I didn't like Unbroken. But, um, and I am also, he- I'm hearing not good things about By the Sea, except for from people like you, and that's making me want to see it. From the likes of you. <laughs> no, but I mean that in a good way. Like, yeah. The things that you seem, we'll talk about what you responded to in it. Well, I'll say first off that I was looking forward to the movie and I was rooting for it because there aren't a lot of melodramas being made by big stars these days. And that's a genre I love a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was really happy to see her go in this direction and to make something that she wrote. She wrote it apparently like eight years ago or so. And she and Brad Pitt said they frequently talked about it. It was this crazy one that'll never get made. And I'm like, I don't get why people seem to be rooting against it going into it. Like even when the trailers were putting put out, it was tagged as a vanity project and basically coming up with all these ways in which it was disposable, which to me, David Ehrlich wrote a wonderful article about this in Rolling Stone that everyone should read um, that put this a lot more elegantly. But basically that's like the term like vanity project is a way for the studio to distance themselves from it and to throw the artist under the bus and subtly not support the movie that they're putting out. And there was this piece and deadline that just felt like universal had you know authored it in some way where the studio was just defending themselves against this crazy artist who they couldn't control because she was too famous and it's like these are exactly the kind of movies we should be rooting for (laughs) movies that nobody wants to see made the marketplace doesn't have a place for but which she made because she's that powerful and that wealthy and wields that much influence in hollywood and i know she's beautiful and i know she's rich and i know she has uh and she's like the most famous actress on the planet but she can make a uh, movie for herself too and we should be wanting to see the movies that she wants to make and not just maleficent or whatever Um, yeah yeah i mean if if this was someone else's passion project and someone we didn't, who didn't have whatever cultural baggage we'd be all for them wanting to make the movie they want to make. Right. Well, and the media is so obsessed with Angelina Jolie the rest of the time. That's like, you know, they laud her for humanitarian work, which is extensive. I should note. I was looking at a Wikipedia page today and it's like way more than anyone would expect a famous person to ever do. Um, and we celebrate her for, uh, writing publicly about her double mastectomy, which is a great thing she did and really raised awareness in a very powerful way. So then when she comes out with this thing, she's like, Oh, this is really important to me guys. We're like, screw that. (laughs) Well, but do you think, do you think it's just, if you hit, if you cast, Anybody else aside from her and her husband, if you if you put anybody else in there, do you think the film it certainly can't be put out there as a vanity project because she it's not I mean, this is not her first film. Right. And, you know, her her first film was about as inaccessible as you can get. (laughs) And then her second film was more accessible, but worse. Um, (laughs) So I think I think it might just be this idea of. 
and I don't think this is why like critics don't like it and I've not seen it myself, but like, I think it might have to do with this idea of, well, it's like, Oh, and she's in it and her, and her husband's in it and they're playing a married couple. Oh, that's great. And, but from what I hear and what I've seen of it, it's just like, Oh, are they having, are they having troubles? <laughs> um, but I know that that's, it's more than that. It's, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm curious about it from a marriage standpoint. Yeah. Um, to me, this gets into the film itself. That makes it much more interesting. It makes it much more small and personal. You know, I mean, obviously there was a crew there. They have a cinematographer, but you really, for long stretch of the film, it feels like it's just them creating this thing. And they are perfectly capable actors. And I think this is a great time for Brad Pitt to be making this. He's gotten more adventurous in the last few years, mm-hmm. you know, doing stuff like ever since really, I'd say assassination of Jesse James, uh, curious case of Benjamin button is a very strange prestige movie. Um, tr- he did tree of life. He did killing him softly. And he's gotten this place now where it used to be that his best performances were the ones that required a lot of him physically. And now, um, actually Moneyball's fits in as well too. Now yeah. he's much calmer on screen and he can just sit there and find a way to be interesting without jumping up and down and flailing around or doing a crazy voice. Yeah. Um, and so this movie that's in some ways, you know, harkening back to like Antonioni and there are long stretches of the movie where quote unquote, nothing happens and it requires the two of them to just command the screen on their own. And I'm not going to say part of the interest doesn't come from the fact that they're maybe the most famous couple in America, this side of uh, the president and first lady, but that they bring a lot to it as performers as well. Mm-hmm. And the movie itself is a lot stranger than you would expect a quote unquote vanity project to be. And the characters are a lot more unlikable than you would expect. Um, they eventually take a turn where they're spying on a couple newlyweds next to them as they have sex. Um, and this is something they're engaging in together. <laughs> um, and they're just, both of them, both of the characters are very, spiteful and petty and they use they kind of wield their beauty against people in ways that are kind of are kind of uncomfortable and it's just a really interesting movie that i found very moving and very uh, vulnerable in ways that like i said are kind of uncomfortable sometimes there are some lines that are maybe a little awkward on paper but she's putting it out there anyway and it's just a lot more interesting a film to wrestle with. I'll be posting a piece on it that'll gone up by the time this episode goes up, actually, um, that gets more into this. But um, it's just a really accomplished movie. She does a lot visually with where she places people in the room and in the camera blocking that conveys a lot of these themes. And she's thinking about it a lot more than I felt like she was thinking about Unbroken, which felt to me just kind of soulless and just kind of presentational to use the word David hates me using. Um, <laughs> but you know what? I feel like that for unbroken. I feel like that works yeah. really well. Yeah. Um, because it's, you say presentational. I say, Hey, look at all this stuff that happened. Yeah. And then that's kind of it. Yeah. I don't know if I would ever say it's weird. I didn't really like her first film. I didn't really like unbroken. I don't know if I would ever say she's a bad director though. I feel like she has good instincts and it just needs to, yeah, I mean, just thinking, need to be redirected or something. Yeah, thinking back to Unbroken. Well, I guess in relation to By the Sea too, it's like this, with By the Sea, it's a topic she clearly knows more about. Yeah, which is not just marriage, but also just like being a beautiful woman and the effect that has on people around you and being of a certain class. And her character is a former dancer, so she has a certain amount of fame. Um, so it's a world that she understands more, and I feel like that comes across. Whereas Unbroken, it's like 
the story itself is so fundamentally heroic and so noble, and she doesn't seem to have access to that side. Well, and the part that would be, you said it's soulless, the part of Unbroken right. that would be the most soulful is the part... Completely excised. That, yeah, that, right. that it stops right before. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm sorry, we can... We can keep yeah, so let's move on. Yeah. Because I'm very excited for the next movie, because I, I get to talk now. Oh, watch out. <laughs> and it's... Well, yeah, I haven't seen any of these. That doesn't, that's not stopping me from talking. No, or should it? Oh, we've noticed. Uh, <laughs> no, the next movie is uh, one of my favorite movies of the year uh, so far, and probably will remain up there, right? Um, I still need to see it again. We've talked about this, you and I, before. But, but I mean, um, I, we're talking about the same movie. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to introduce the movie. Oh, okay. Uh, the movie is Carol by Todd Haynes. Um, now, I already, people who listen to the movie journal already heard me two weeks ago uh, just explode about this movie. So, and you are, just posted a very fine review, I should say. What's that? You just posted a very fine review, I should oh, say. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Um, for saying that, yes, I, that was one of uh, a lot of reviews that I posted this week. Uh, my, my, I wore my fingers out this week. Um, why don't you say what you thought of it then? Well, I don't really have a, a, like a take on it at this moment. I just couldn't really get into it emotionally, I guess. And I was the one thing I have against it right now is its opening scene. I wonder how you feel about that. It starts kind of in meteor res, and it starts at a point that won't come until much later in the narrative. And which I feel throws off the central unexpectedness, I guess, of the central romance. Did you have a problem with that? Um, no, I actually, um, I, I, don't, I don't see how it throws it off. I, I liked, um, what I liked about it is not just the first scene, but the, the, the transition from the first scene to the first scene chronologically yeah. is a bit intentionally blurred. Do you know okay. what I mean? Because in the first scene, she's talking about going to a party. Right. And then the next thing we see is her in a cab with some other people. Right. And it takes a second to realize, like, to figure out whether or not this is her going to the party she was just talking about in the scene, or this is what it is, which is an entirely, something that happened a year ago, or, you know, a year ago, however long it is. Um, and I really appreciated that sort of, um, that bit of knocking me off, off balance, because then it feels like I'm going to, uh, because I'm talking to you of all people, I'm going <laughs> to quote, uh, the television show Glee. Okay. When, um, uh, Blaine proposed to Kurt and he said that, um, it doesn't feel like I've been getting to know you. It feels like I've been remembering you. Yeah. And so this idea of placing them together from the beginning and then, cutting to the shot of her sort of pensively sitting, you know, uh, looking out the window while she's in a cab. Uh, you, even though, even though what she's, whatever she's thinking about in that cab can't be Carol because she hasn't actually met her yet. Right. We're projecting onto her that she's thinking about Carol so that when they meet, it has that feeling of these people, even though they're just meeting, they already know, know each other. They already have some sort of polar connection. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. And is one of many things I'll be interested to <laughs> reconsider when I see the movie again. Um, I did think it was Rooney Mara's best work to date. Um, and she'll be high on my list for the BPs and OFCS yeah. and all that. Now, we know... Um, we did you, about did you see Pan? I did not see Pan. <laughs> mm. Although it is at the $3 theater now. We've Pretty been, tempted. We've been talking a lot about awards. And we know that the Weinstein Company is um, pushing Rooney Mara for supporting. Supporting, yeah. Um, when I think I point out my review and I've seen other people point out in their, uh, reviews and discussions that it is 
at least they are at least equal billing, if not Rooney Mara's character being yeah, the lead for sure. If, I think it's if, really if, if it tips story. either way, it tips more toward her. Although there are plenty of scenes that are Carol and her husband, and that story sort of um, develops uh, parallel to Rooney Mara's character. It, if you had to, if I had to pick one of them as the lead, I would pick Rooney Mara's character. Yeah, I think partially just because she's the one with less history. There's so much backstory to Carol that we find out about. Right. But uh, Rooney Mara, Therese, I think her name is. Um, Therese. Is Therese, right. Yeah. Um, she kind of comes into the story as a bit of a blank slate, and so we're able to enter the story more uh, easily through her, and that makes her more natural lead. But, you know, there's also a huge history in the Academy of putting the less famous person in supporting. Yeah. And also All, the... The movie is named after right. There's Kate always that. character, um, um, which I again point out. In my review it could be taken multiple ways. I, I will say that the Golden Globes made the right choice and are doing Rooney Mara and lead. Okay, so this could change yet. All right, um, but uh, so other than the opening scene, you like everything else? Just the opening scene? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't have a problem with anything else. I just need to see it again. I, I feel like I didn't catch this spark that everyone else is on about. Um, there's really no reason for it. I, yeah, I, I, uh, don't, I don't have a strong case for nor against. Uh, okay. Well, I, I, I talked about the movie journal. We don't have to talk too long uh, about it, but uh, it is, it, it's in, it's in my top five currently of the year. Rightfully so. All right. It's a hell of a made movie. Um, let's move on to another thing you and I both saw and another thing I believe we disagree with. Yes. We haven't talked about it at length, but not as strongly. No. Um, this is, uh, and I'm forgetting the woman's name who directed it, um, Denise something? Or is oh, that? no, you're way off. Uh, oh, I'm thinking of the director of Mustang. Athena Rachel Snar... Snodgrass. Kind of. Snongri. I'm okay. going to go. Um, and the movie is called uh, Chevalier or yeah. Chevalier. I'm going to go Chevalier. Um, and it is uh, a, I guess it's a Greek uh, movie. It's That's a, correct. It's about a group of... I guess wealthy or well-to-do Greek Greek men on an extended sort of uh, fishing vacation on a yacht. Yeah. So it's just them. It's what, what's there's six, five or six of them. I there's six, six of the main guys, and then kind and, of like a support staff. And yeah, there's three. There's the captain, right? The I guess valet or butler and the cook. Yeah. Um. And so that's the that's pretty much the entire cast of the movie, and they decide to play. Uh, a game. The initial suggestion is that each one of them will um, suggest a feat, either of strength or of um, mental, <laughs> whatever I would fail at right now, <laughs> uh, mental acuity. Uh, and they each judge everyone on these whatever six things. And someone ups it and says, "Why don't we? We'll do that." But also, in the meantime, in the background, we'll judge each other on everything. And at the end of the trip, we'll see who has granted the most right. points. So it's uh, six men competing at everything um, for, uh, I guess, what initially is supposed to be forty-eight hours. But then I think they end up <laughs> they stay, yeah, they stay, stay on the boat on, on uh, once the boat docks just to continue the game for another like two days. So it's like four days of men. Uh, competing and i think uh, anyone who has especially is a male and has spent a long time with other males that sort of thing happens i think and this is just exaggerating it it's it's uh, there's a bit of a i don't know if satire is quite the right word um but there's a bit of a lampooning going on i think uh and i think it's very telling that it's directed by a woman um and you get this outsider perspective of how 
ridiculous men can act sometimes when they're trying to impress one another or be thought of as more manly. Interestingly, the director said that the story wouldn't be any different if it was about women. Uh, yeah, I guess I wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. To me, this movie was a little surfacey, but also not so broadly satiric and wild that it was that amusing. There were some funny bits to it, but it was a little like didn't go far enough one way or the other. And especially I think about a movie like Hump Day, which is also about kind of male competition that way that really goes all the way with its premise and follows that all the way to the end. And this was like, I don't know, it was just a little little soft. I definitely see that, um, that complaint that it could, it could have gone bigger. It does in a couple of points. I think it goes, um, uh, where you get some tastes of how big it could go. Um, I don't want to spoil the, how they get to some actual bloodletting near the end. <laughs> but that's, um, that, that scene is really, I, I really liked. Um, and, uh, again, I feel like this is not uh, a huge uh, disagreement right. between the two of us. I, uh, but it, it worked, it worked for me a lot. I, I laughed a lot. Um, and it felt, it felt honest to me, even when they're being ridiculous and, um, doing things that I can't see myself ever doing. um, as someone who has, you know, never felt, you know, on like my little league teams or whatever, always feeling that sort of competition and not wanting to take part in it, but also feeling like if I didn't, then I would be losing whatever competition. I, I think there's a yeah. lot of maybe personally for me, I have a lot of neuroses around masculinity. <laughs> and so uh, this tapped into that. Yeah, I quickly deduced that I would abstain from the competition, but secretly hope that would make me win it. <laughs> <laughs> I choose not to run. Yeah, it's yeah. The, it's that but then they would all thing. reward me for it. They'd be like, exactly. you didn't participate the best. So yeah. you win. Or just like, oh, you know what? I bet he's not participating because he's better than this. <laughs> um, uh, have either of you seen Husbands, the John Cassavetes? No. Yes. yes. You said, oh, that's right. You, yes, I've seen Husbands. It's, uh, this reminds me of that. Yeah. Well, it also reminds me, you mentioned Hump Day, which reminds me of the Mr. Show sketch about the two guys who end up getting married and living a happy <laughs> life together because neither one of them wants to back down. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen a single episode of Mr. Show. Oh, you are missing it. Well, that, you know what? You're not like, I'm, I, I'm envious of you. You have all this Mr. Show to watch now. That's what people tell me. Um, anyway, uh, I will say this before we move on. Um, I don't know if you agree. I think the performances are across the board. Yes. Really great. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. A bunch of names that I started to write down and then realized I would never pronounce correctly. So, but they're all good. Yeah. Um, I had, I had a question. Yes. Sorry, sir. Uh, but I'm curious. Um, it is about masculinity, uh, but it's also, it is Greek. It's a Greek film, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know much about Greeks, but histor- <laughs> but historically. Like ancient Greeks. Uh, I, I, yeah. And so, like, do you feel like it's, there? there's a, a cultural thing there as well? well or do you think re- it's they're, primarily? They're not wrestling naked at any point, which is not to say they're not naked at any point because <laughs> right. they're, yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're if a bunch of guys are going to compete, obviously and judge each other, then obviously we're going to have to get naked at some point. Yes. I've made it about us now, the three of us. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, that's, but it could be, you know, maybe is that a, is that a culture that is more competitive with guys feeling I, that they need to I don't know but I don't prove themselves. I don't feel that um Greek identity played into the movie itself. Okay. In 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 uh, ways, do you? 
my family has recently uh, joined with a very Greek family, and there's a bit of an element to that. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. I thought you were going to say your family recently joined... I don't know, uh, a cult or something. Um, we uh, just joined a local YMCA, and uh, <laughs> I've been building up those muscles. <laughs> right. Should that naked wrestling ever come into play? All right, what's up next? Next up is uh, Michelle Franco's Chronic, starring Tim Roth as a male nurse who cares for, as the title indicates, uh, chronically ill patients. That's right, this sounded very good to me. Um, it is, I think, very good. Uh, the director is apparently widely hated in hardcore cinephile circles that I sometimes run in. This is the director um, of what other, what other after Lucia. Oh, Oh, Oh no. I love that movie. Yeah. So after do I Lucia. Yeah. I thought it was pretty good. Even though this, even though the screener I got was <laughs> fucked up. They did the that point. on purpose. No, the, <laughs> um, the subtitles were out of sync, but not only were they out of sync, they weren't consistently out of sync. They kept getting more out of sync. That as the movie happened went to on. me with a movie I was streaming one time. And eventually, yeah, by like the end of it, uh, you're like minutes apart. <laughs> yeah. And so I, but I ended, I was so transfixed by the movie yeah. that I just watched it the whole way with that. And just figured I didn't, eventually I didn't have any problem figuring out what was right. wrong with it. I mean, the subtitles were backwards yeah. and oh man, <laughs> I don't know who doesn't like, um, who doesn't like after Lucia. I don't know. A bunch of assholes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, that's a really good movie, I thought. Um, but yes, yeah, so this is his newest movie. It's his first movie in English. They shot it actually here in Los Angeles. Um, and whatever one may think about the movie, and I think it's, it's pretty good. It plays with uh, sort of audience sympathies and the way we can kind of judge characters based on what little we see in interesting ways. Um, but Tim Roth is really great in it. Um, and he really brings a strong physical presence to the role, which a nurse, you know, you got to like move people around and care for people in very physical ways, but he also brings a calmness to that. It's not just the physical, you can see why people would trust him and you can see why he's good at his job and why he forms these bonds with these people. Uh, the sick people he forms the bonds with much better than the well people, which is gotten into in a backstory. The reason he would bond more with, uh, the soon to be dead than the alive. But, um, yeah, it's just a, it's a really strong, interesting movie. I wrote about it more for the site, but, um, uh, it doesn't have distribution at the moment, but I would really hope it does eventually. Um, yeah, I, I don't have much else to say about it other than people should check it out if they can. Okay. Uh, let's move on to, I think, um, I, I closed my list, but I think it's another one we've both seen. Yeah, Embrace of the Serpent. Yes, another uh, one of my favorites of the year. By, um, what are we saying, Chiro or Ciro? Um, Ciro Guerra? I think Ciro. All right, Ciro I feel pretty good about that. Guerra. Yeah. Um, I talked about it on the, on the movie journal. It's the story um, told... Which is apparently a theme this year, um, a story told in two different time periods that cuts parallel. <laughs> we were talking in the movie journal that in the past two weeks I saw like six movies right. that used that uh, um, two different time periods cutting back and forth. Um, it's, it's about two different uh, white men in the Amazon, one German, one American, one, um, uh, I guess, like an ethnologist or and yeah. one, like a botanist. Botanist, that's um, and they then they're touring toward they're they're not to, they're exploring the same area and what ties the two halves together is that they have the same guide even though it's what thirty five years apart right. in between um, it's the same um, native guide 
um, across the played by two different actors, but across the across the years, and he's really the lead of the film. Uh, I think the I mean, character is. It's tough to say which of the actors would be. Then. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> but the, yeah, that character is yeah. is the lead. Um, uh, and I thought I thought it was fantastic. What did you think of it? Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said on the show and in your review. It's one of those that after what you said about it, compared to like Apocalypse Now and mm-hmm. all that, like it starts out pretty modestly for where it eventually goes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it does eventually go there and it gets in, it uses episodic structure really well in showing the different ways colonialism has kind of affected the community without the rubber plant gets brought up a lot, but uh, the rubber plant itself is rarely factors in the story. It's just kind of about the effects of it, right. which I thought was a really interesting way to take it. Yeah. Um, you know, it visits like a mission where a priest is trying to uh, rescue young kids and he kind of is, and he kind of isn't. And it has he's, a, he's rescuing him according to his yes, Western and Judeo-Christian uh, definitions. Um, and so it has a lot of things like that where it's like you can see the good effect that this could have, but in practice it's not working out. Yeah, and then we get to immediately, like in the next sequence, see that mission 35 years later right. in a much crazier, yeah. <laughs> uh, crazier setting. Yeah, I forgot that I, I described it as... Dead Man Meets Apocalypse Now in the Amazon. Yeah. And I stick by that. <laughs> and that's, uh, not only because I think it's accurate, I also think it's uh, fun to say, I feel like. <laughs> uh, um, but that one comes out in February from Oscilloscope. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's really great. Uh, it's, in, it's in black and white, except for there is a part that's not in black and white. Um, and it really hits you. Yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, now, you can talk about this next movie because I'm not saying it. Not um, saying yes, so this movie. is a title of your movie that I will now say. Okay, everyone. Oh, right. <laughs> yes. Brace yourself. <laughs> Seriously. Um, it is called Field Niggas. Um, and my friends and I had a long debate about whether we should say the title, and we all avoided it. And it was fun to go into the movie and see the people managing the lines and people introducing. Tactfully not say the title of the movie we were all about to see. Um, <laughs> What were they saying? They were just like, uh, theater number three. <laughs> and then the guy would introduce me like, you guys are about to see a really interesting movie. <laughs> Never saying the title of the movie. Yeah. It's, I laugh, but that's exactly what I would be. Doing. An alternate oh, title is just uh, loosening your collar. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it's a really interesting movie. It's a documentary. It's about 60 minutes long by this, uh, filmmaker, Kalik Allah, who I guess is also a photo artist and has this whole like, online photo series depicting the community at around 125th and Lexington in New York. Um, and so he's kind of expanded that into this movie that is a lot of slow motion shots with voiceover. So there's no kind of like on camera interviews in the traditional sense, but loosely the people he's talking to are on the screen every time they're talking. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a very effective movie. I, you don't really see depictions of this kind of deep poverty, in any kind of filmmaking documentary or otherwise. Um, so it was just, it was, it was very confrontational and, you know, I've been to that part of New York and quickly left because it's, it is frightening and just how, uh, how rampant the poverty is and how many people are just screaming and, uh, ranting wildly. And it's, it's an uncomfortable place to be. And he really captures, the feeling of being trapped there economically and socially and just how far down these people are that they don't even have the option of escape, even if, and some of them don't even think to want to. Um, but those that do, you don't get the sense that there are any options for them. 
Um, it gets maybe a little, uh, I hate to use a word, hippy dippy towards the end with, uh, <laughs> the filmmaker providing his own, uh, thoughts on, uh, the love we should all share. Um, but when he's focusing on the people, which is the majority of its rather short running time, it's a very strong movie. I think it recently opened in New York, but it's probably closed by now, which means it must have some form of distribution, which I hope gets it out there because it's a movie that definitely deserves to be seen. You know, I can, I've been down on documentaries in the past in the show, but, uh, this and another movie that I'll talk about in a little bit, make a strong case for the form to take more adventurous routes. Okay. Tyler's give me a look. I don't think I, I don't think I remember that you hate documentaries as much as you do. I wouldn't say I hate them. I just find them very boring <laughs> because my least favorite part of any movie is where people tell you what's going on in the movie. Mm. And so a lot of documentaries are people sitting down telling you what's going on in the movie. Oh. Yeah, I think you, you got to watch some different ones. I know. And so I, I look for more adventurous ones like this. I like Werner Herzog's stuff. Um, but for the most part, if I see documentary, I instantly check out. I'll make a list for you. Okay. Okay, what's next? Uh, next is The Forbidden Room by Guy Madden. And uh, credit, he was credited as a co-director. Not It wasn't a film by both these guys, but it's Guy Madden, co-director Evan Johnson. Um, I haven't seen a ton of Guy Madden, but I've seen My Winnipeg. I saw that Dracula movie he did. Hmm. Pages from um, a Virgin's Diary? Yeah, that's the one. Yes. Um, I think that might be it, actually. Um so, but I was really looking forward to this. I'd heard amazing things. It has a great cast, including, including Udo Kier, uh, Mathieu Almerique, Geraldine Chaplin, Charlotte Rampling, oh. um, a ton of others. And it's a very, you know, this is what the term dreamlike was meant to <laughs> convey. Um, it was shot digitally, but, proce- but in some sort of effects process made to look like an aged and kind of falling apart film. It dips in and out of like a submarine story, a woodsman adventure, a volcano thing, uh, a man trying to murder his wife. Um, oh. It's you're got selling it all. me. You're selling me here. Um, yeah. Oh, we um, going way back to Sundance. Matt Warren talked about. Oh, really? Uh, he okay. saw this at Sundance, and I think talked about it on the show. Um, and for maybe a different sensibility than my own, a lot of people love this movie. I should say, but I, it's two hours long and retreats quite often to a kind of like adult swim Tim and Eric kind of humor where it's just like, here's some random shit. Isn't that hilarious? (laughs) Which at first is, but then it gets to, you know, the hour 40 mark and you realize you still have a lot of movie to go and still going back to the same type of humor. And the thing ends up playing a bit like those click hole, uh, choose your own adventure stories. Yeah. Those are fun. They wear on me fast. (laughs) Um, So I found this movie a little difficult to get with. There are parts that really work and really toe the line between being quite beautiful and quite absurd. Um, But by the end of it, I was just completely exhausted. It was the first film I saw of the day and not a great way to start the day. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of a... I I feel like I've probably seen enough guy men at this point to be able to speak about the type of filmmaker he is and the type of sense of humor he has. Like in twilight of the ice nymphs, you get to see uh, Frank Gorshin with, I believe, Oh, now I don't totally remember. I think he just has like a knife in his head <laughs> or uh, an ax and he's walking around with it. Just it gets, it gets embedded in his head and he's walking around talking for a while. I think that's the situation. <laughs> I haven't seen it in a number of years, but a very strange sense of humor. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't feel like my Winnipeg had it. Did you, did you see that one? I did not see that no. one. I thought I love that movie. Um, but it, it has the same surrealism, but without the kind of like, hmm. I guess randomness. Um, 
so yeah that's all i got on forbidden room um next movie is h which about uh, heroin if only um <laughs> no it's a pretty good movie um it built itself as a modern day retelling of the story of helen of troy with two different kind of parallel narratives maybe i forget the story of helen of troy but this seemed to have uh no bearing on it <laughs> besides the two women being named helen were there a couple of some ships launched nope oh, all right uh but it's kind of an uh, apocalyptic story about maybe an alien invasions going on uh it kind of has the same tone as like a uh an upstream color kind of thing okay. where there's something <laughs> kind of wrong with this world but you can't quite figure out what it is it's nicely spooky in that way. Um, a couple other people with I saw with really loved it, and I, I liked it all right. Um, Robin Bartlett, who played uh, Mrs. Gorfine of Where Is His Scrotum Fame in Inside Lewin Davis, <laughs> um, is one of the leads here and is really good. She plays an older woman. Naturally, she is an older woman um, who is part of this like group that buys these weird baby dolls and pretends they're actual children. Um, which is nice and creepy, but she plays it in a very sympathetic way. And her storyline of the two is much stronger. Um, and she ends up losing her husband in this, like maybe it's an apocalyptic thing and kind of like slowly unraveling as the course of that. Um, and it gets to kind of like that territory of an upstream color, for example, where, you know, your life is upset, but you can't quite figure out why. And like I said, it's nicely spooky, but it's, a little too fashionable. I don't know. The other story is these two younger people who have zero charisma um, <laughs> and are, are nice to look at, but uh, they play, you know, a couple of artists who are just living the artist life, man. Um, <laughs> but just not, not quite as interesting. Um, so yeah, that's H. Uh, the next movie, which I absolutely loved is called the liar. It's from South Korea. Uh, which I, for some reason, wrote as South Korea in my notes here. Um, it's directed by uh, a woman, actually. The first film I think I've ever seen from a Korean woman, uh, Kim Dong-myung. Um, and it's about this young woman who works kind of a menial job at a dermatology clinic, but because she comes in contact with these rich women who have you know very superfluous lives and very shallow problems compared to herself, who lives with her siblings who don't seem to work at all and just drink all day. Um, so she kind of wants to break out of this. And so she starts posing as a more wealthy person as kind of a housewife and goes on home tours and orders refrigerators that she either cancels the orders of and kind of finds a way to live a fantasy life outside of the one she's stuck in. And of course this slowly backfires and slowly unravels on her. Um, and so without kind of going into like, extreme south korean thriller territory it's very tightly plotted very interesting and uh very compelling to watch and the lead performance uh by kim K kakobi i'm gonna say um is very strong and gets in to some pretty wild territory and lets the character be kind of guarded at some points and because she's juggling all these false narratives but when she starts to unravel she really starts to go um it doesn't have distribution, which is really too bad because I really think the audiences would respond to this if they had a chance to, but such is the nature of festival going. What is the ratio of non-distributed films or films without distribution at AFI Fest? Oh, I don't know. On total. I mean, they play like 80 movies there. Right. Um, it just, it seems like most of the ones 
Most of them do. I would say so. Yeah. Overall. Um, but the handful that don't, honestly, I mean, I focused on that more last year and was kind of underwhelmed. (laughs) Um, so it's, it's good to find a balance during these festivals, but every now and again, there's a film like this that you can tell isn't going to have any commercial potential because it doesn't have, you know, one of the name South Korean directors and its premise isn't quite wild enough for the, you know, the tartan video crowd or whatever. Um, but it really deserves to be seen if it can be seen. That's the liar. Yeah. Uh, our next film definitely has distribution. This is one you and I have both seen. And now after Carol and Chevalier, the tables are turned. Oh, really? Because you like this movie a lot. A lot. I, I did not like it that much. It's Justin Kurzel's Macbeth. Yes. Um, his last film, which I was surprised to find was the same director, Snowtown, which is one of the most unsettling crime movies I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Um, played oh. AFI Fest a few years ago. And it's sometimes referred to as the Snowtown Murders. It was released here as the Snowtown Murders. Okay. I saw it as Snowtown, so that's how I always think about it. Right. Um, but, but yeah, so I was kind of surprised that he got uh, such a big project, but I'm really glad he did. Because I like both movies quite a bit, but why? What? what why not so Macbeth with you? Well, let me talk first about the stuff that I did like. Okay, which is um, I liked its. Uh, I can't remember. You were talking about um, I think Forbidden Room or no? I can't remember what movie you were talking about that said there's a uh, you said was dreamlike. Forbidden Room. Okay, uh, and Macbeth has a really dreamlike quality to its um, framing and sound design, and especially its editing, where certain shots or images are are juxtaposed or edited next to one another in a way that our movie going minds expect to interpret as chron- chronology but they're not necessarily yeah it jumps it doesn't jump around in time so much as it jumps around almost internally um, within the person's mind. Like it's something that is happening that didn't necessarily happen at the same time is cut to because it affects what's going on in the previous shot. I, 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 I don't want to give too many examples, but um, it, it does have this, it does seem at times kind of really enchantingly like disassociated from itself in ways yeah. that I, that I, that I, I liked that mood. The problem is that I feel like it's kind of static in that, that it, that I, I really enjoyed that for the first 15 to 20 minutes of the movie. And then I felt like it, 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 it never changed it up or raised the stakes of that as it went on. And I feel like that applies to the character work as well, which I feel like this is a very, uh, mumbly and again, kind of static, uh, portrayal of Macbeth, and I also feel like, with the exception of a couple scenes in which she's great as a character, it shuttles Lady Macbeth off to the side for, uh, m- for more so than I would have liked. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, Macbeth is the Shakespeare play I'm probably most familiar with, but I'm also not super familiar with it. So I, I'm that might be true that it shuttles her off to the side too much. Um, I thought that. Marion Cotillard's performance was so strong and surprisingly sympathetic um, and not at all like the kind of crazy interpretation that you sometimes see um, that I thought she made such a strong impression that it didn't bother me at all. And as for the editing style, I I mean, Terrence Malick sticks to the same thing throughout his movies that he establishes from the beginning and it never really feels like it drags. But I guess uh, he's, he's also telling Terrence Malick is telling stories as, you know, deluded as they can sometimes be in a good way. Um, 
there's still a, a, a growth. And I guess, yeah, I feel like I, I hit on the word and I've already used it twice. So I might as well use it the third time. The movie felt static to me in so many ways that I kind of felt like I'd, I'd absorbed all it had to offer by the 30 minute mark. And then it just kept doing it. I can understand that perspective, but I disagree. <laughs> no, I mean, to get more into the editing pattern, I think it upsets the, uh, the soliloquies in a lot of interesting ways and just cutting around and treating them almost as voiceovers and not yeah. as these like grand pronouncements. They become as personal as they would read on stage. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought that, uh, Fassbender's performance was very good. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, you know, you, you reminded me of, uh, there's one scene I really like where he, <laughs> at like the dining hall, yeah. right? He pulls one guy aside and is talking to him about a murder that they right. planned. <laughs> but it's the way it would happen on a stage where you're like, okay, this is realistic. Everyone can hear him. Right. Like, there's, <laughs> there's, he hasn't gone into the room. He's just <laughs> sitting next to the guy and talking about, but uh, it doesn't play into that. But it also doesn't try to pretend like they can't hear him either. It just sort of, it doesn't, it doesn't address it. And yeah, I, that I, part, I really liked that, actually. Really? Okay, that part did rub me the wrong way. Fair enough. Uh, um, yeah, see, so you, you and I are just um, <laughs> approaching this from opposite uh, points of view. I guess. But I think the kind of punishing way that uh, Kurzel directed it, which is you know really ramping up the violence, really ramping up the imagery, and kind of being assaultive with colors, and I think that paid off really well, and it plays off in the sound design, too. I mean, the kind of Hale Macbeth scenes are... I think really effective in a theater. <laughs> They're really loud and booming and yeah, yeah. you really get the oppressive force of uh, an average regime, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the violence, it does. If you've ever wondered, I wonder what it would look like if a person <laughs> went, was standing up and then was beheaded in one swift yeah. swing of the sword. It's like, yeah, that's probably exactly what it would look like. Sounds about right. <laughs> <Yeesh>. <laughs> I've never seen uh, Roman Polanski's Macbeth. Have you? I've seen half of it. Okay. How is it? Uh, I liked it that okay. half. Uh, I should finish it someday. I think I've, I think on film, I think I've, I'm only familiar with, uh, Orson Welles, Wells, Macbeth, yeah. and then of course, Scotland's Scotland, yeah. yeah. which I've is maybe my favorite. I've seen that of, as well. Actually, it's yeah. one of the few movies I watched on the Sundance channel back when that was a thing. Yeah. And I guess there's throne of blood as well, but yeah, know, which, yeah. It, which I like quite a bit. Yeah. But it doesn't really count. Let's be honest. Right. Um, exactly. <laughs> Justin Kurzel's next movie is he's reteaming with my Fassbender to make the assassin's and creed. Marion Cotillard's in the movie too. I didn't know that. Okay. Um, yeah, so that should be very sort strange. of a, sort of an audition for them for, uh, for assassin's creed. Undoubtedly. Right? Yeah, I guess so. Um, no, I guess, um, from what I understand, like, um, I guess Michael Fassbender was cast in Assassin's Creed and yeah, I think he, he recruited, I think he initiated it cause he's producing it too. Okay. I think it was kind of his baby. Um, all right. Next one is a, a Mexican movie that I saw called a monster with a thousand heads, which is, I feel about this the way I think Scott, you felt about Chevalier, which is that it never went far enough or deep enough into its premise to work as well as it sets out to. It does have a pretty interesting premise. Yeah. The premise is that uh, a woman um, has a husband who is um, terminally ill and she tries to go to his doctor to get some treatments covered by insurance uh, that aren't and things get out of hand. She ends up pulling a gun on him and following him to his home. And then he leads her to, well, you know, my my signature isn't going to get this done. You need to talk to this person at the hospital. So then she goes to the country club and 
assaults this guy and then he takes it and like we had to go to the insurance company and then he's like well you have to go to one of the shareholders so she's like holding people at gunpoint and like just with these papers that she needs signed and sort of working her way up the chain of the insurance bureaucracy which is again i think it's a a really interesting idea um but it doesn't it it's it's by me describing the premise you kind of got (laughs) You you get what the point of the movie is, and I feel like it doesn't get enough into the more human element of her. It's sort of she's sort of um, the fact that she has a gun at all is, um, I think, kind of a contrivance um, that uh, took me out of the out of the movie a little bit. And it's uh, I, I know I'm someone who celebrates short movies, but this is one that could stand to be longer. It's only about 75 minutes long. It's the nice thing about film festivals. Every now and again, you'll get a 75 minute movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All right. What's next for you? Uh, also a very short movie. Um, refreshingly. So called El movie, El movimiento, which is an Argentinian movie. Well, I heard they're remaking that. Am I missing something? Uh, <laughs> oh, you it, son it, of a it bitch. It kind of sounds like memento. Is <laughs> oh, <I'm> okay. <laughs> Touche. Um, this is another very standard festival movie that you see where it's very pretty to look at and is really acted like they're really acting it guys. Yeah. Um, it, but what, I don't know what's going on. Um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense and it's, it's only so compelling, but it's also only 70 minutes and it's really pretty to look at and it's really forcefully acted. So it's pretty entertaining in its own way. Um, but I can't really explain it. It's loosely about this band of people rising up against something. And there's a lot of reversals and sudden stabbings that you wouldn't expect. And people running up and making declarations about things. And it's very pretty to look at and very forcefully acted. <laughs> and that's about all. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. Uh, the next movie, one that just I saw, this is, um, okay. I don't know if I'm a cynic or whatever, but so you guys know, you guys here at this table and the, and you guys uh, and gals listening at home, you know, that the way that the, uh, foreign language submissions work is that each country gets to submit a movie, like right. be their official submission for uh, foreign language for, for the Academy. And I've gotten to a point where when I see that a movie is, the official movie, I'm immediately skeptical of it. Because I, I did feel the same like, thing. I feel like a lot of countries nominate, and this goes this goes back to Mexico uh, nominating <laughs> El Crimen del Padre yeah. Amaro, The Crime of Father Amaro, instead of Itamar Temian. Um, that's probably where it started. But a lot of times I feel like they just uh, submit their most middle-brow yeah. type of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so when I heard of this movie Mustang, it sounded, you know, it's kind of interesting, but it's the official French uh, uh, selection. But you know what? I was wrong to be cynical. It's actually a really terrific movie. Um, it's the French movie, the, the French submission, but it is it takes place entirely in Turkey and unfolds entirely in the Turkish language. <laughs> so it's a Turkish movie, but except that it's made by the French. Such as modern film financing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was, there was a movie like 15 years ago, I remember, called Himalaya that was like a Tibetan oh, yeah. movie, but it was a French movie because everyone who made it was French. Anyway, um, uh, I can't, it, it is impo- impossible both for me and apparently for every other critic um, to talk about Mustang without talking about the Virgin Suicides because mm-hmm. the premise is so similar um, in that it's about five sisters who um, 
are essentially locked inside their house by their uh, incredibly conservative relatives. In this case, their their parents have died sometime before the movie. They live with their uncle and their grand uh, grandmother, um, and they uh, those two being. Um, strict strict islamists um react poorly to some of the girls what to us seems like very normal social behavior mm-hmm. um and end up locking them inside the house pulling them out of school and um one of the the, the one the youngest um sister uh lale is the character's name is the narrator and she describes says their house becomes wife school because their grandmother and her friends basically just teach them here's how you cook here's how you sew here's how you do mm-hmm. this stuff and as soon as the oldest one becomes you know like 14 they start um marrying them uh, arranging marriages and marrying them off so uh it the movie takes place almost entirely in in this house and um almost entirely unlike virgin suicides which is about sisters but is told from the point of view of the neighborhood boys um that's both the book and the movie uh take that tack this movie is uh almost entirely in the house and almost entirely from the girl's perspective um and it's uh uh really um naturalistically executed it feels very uh intimate and um obviously you know it feels authentic i guess is the word that i'm looking for uh and it also doesn't again like virgin suicides it's despite its premise being you know that these girls are treated awfully there's also some sexual abuse that i haven't mentioned haven't mentioned um it's like the Virgin Suicides, it's also not afraid to be funny and be sort of joyful and human and reminding that reminding you that these, yes, these girls are victims and they're prisoners, but they're also people and humans and they have their own, um, relationships and connections to one another and to the outside world. And so there's some like, um, jubilant slice of life comedy in the movie mixed in with, um, something that's very both, uh, emotionally. And I think, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not politically, but philosophically, uh, charged. Uh, and, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's really well made and I, uh, I recommend it. Mustang. That's what it's called. Can't wait to see it. Um, there's no Mustangs in the movie. It's a completely metaphorical title title. And that one comes out in New York and LA this weekend. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. My review. Um, well, I reviewed it when I saw the festival right? and then I, (laughs) copied that text and pasted it into a new post right. for a theatrical review this week. Um, so I reviewed it twice, but I only wrote it once. You're such a lazy writer. Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Was I supposed to write an entirely new review? Yep, absolutely. That's how it goes. Cause Lord knows you don't write enough for the site. Okay. Moving on. Uh, next up is my golden days by, uh, Arnaud discussion. I'm going to say his name is pronounced. Uh, right. he's a French director who made, I think, now he's probably Christmas yeah that's probably what he's most famous for now uh he also made one of my favorite movies last year i want to say called jimmy p um and this is his newest movie back in the french language uh starring a pair of newcomers quentin Dolmer and lou roy le colonnais um and it's it falls into the the familiar genre of the french coming of age story but most of those don't have an espionage plot thrown in the middle of them <laughs> so it's got that going for it and it changes up genre and narration style a few times in there but it's really masterfully done it's gorgeous to look at um while still following the familiar beats of the young guy who falls in love and is discovering sex and independence and art and all that stuff um 
and has the pleasures that genre can provide, but which for me are starting to get a little tired, I guess. Um, especially after this year's Eden, which I think kind of did that whole scene better than just about any movie could. Um, but this is so inventively told and so constantly reinventing itself that it really won me over pretty quickly, even though it was a, a nine forty five screening on Friday night and was over two hours <laughs> and I was quite tired by the end. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it, it hangs in there. It's actually a loose sequel slash prequel to uh, a film he made in 1986 called My Sex Life or How I Got Into an Argument, which I haven't seen, but now I really want to. Um, and I want to see all this guy's films now. He's really kind of attracted me as kind of an heir in some ways to Alain Rene, who passed away last year, um, who constantly threw out all the rules in filmmaking. And I think Desplatchon's getting into that mode of working, which I really appreciate. Um, and that'll come out probably in March, I want to say. Sounds like a good spring release. Um, so do you actually know what's coming out, or are you just guessing? I think it comes out in the spring. Okay. Um, distributors have a way of doing the festival run and then putting their foreign films out in the spring. Sure. Their American films out in the fall. Um, so yeah, people should definitely check that out. Uh, next, this is where I'll get into a little tangent, just real quick. Because uh, next would be a movie called Necktie Youth. If uh, I hadn't gotten to that screening... We, they let us in maybe about eight minutes before it was going to start. So I was like, I better use the bathroom real fast. So I got to use the bathroom, get some water, make a quick phone call. I come back, find uh, my seat's been taken by uh, just some asshole who's not going to give it up. And there are no seats left in the theater. And the AFI Fest staff didn't really care about all that. They had oh. simply taken my bag off the seat and handed it back to me. Wait, you left something on the seat? Yeah. That's unconscionable. Uh, I know. <laughs> you waited in line. They gave you one of those. Yep. They gave me the number. Things. I made it into the theater, plot my th- thing down on a seat. See, this is the whole thing. They give out these little numbers. Yeah. That's you. You were guaranteed a seat <laughs> at that point. I'm, I know you probably okay. processed all this. I'm pissed off right Technically, now. Technically I could have sat in the bottom right corner of the theater, but I didn't care to. I'd gotten there early. I got in a good seat. This guy sitting in your seat. What did he look this like? This woman. I, oh, as a oh okay. Fact. What does she look like? I have an image. Of, hang on. Um, now there's a woman. I have to reimagine her. <laughs> okay. Okay. I think I got it. What All does right. she look like? Um, she was probably early thirties, short blonde hair. Mm. Um, vaguely pretty. I don't know. It's mm. <laughs> <laughs> not what I was asking, but okay. You asked what she looked like. I don't know. What to I tell guess you. so. Yeah. I guess somehow when I, when I think of what an inconsiderate person looks like, I have a very clear idea. Okay. Like when this was a guy, right. He was a big fat guy. <laughs> he's like 400 pounds. And he's not to imply that larger people are inconsiderate, but there's something about like, well, he's filling your seat. So he's going to fill <laughs> that seat. And he's got like a wife beater on. He's uh, smoking a cigar. Um, <laughs> I know you're totally not allowed to. Theater, yeah. yeah, Smoking a cigar and chewing gum, by okay. the way. Somehow that's how I picture it. With, uh, you know, maybe some like a... Uh, Maybe a Chicago accent or just a, <laughs> maybe a New York, like a really thick Brooklyn accent or something like, it's like hey, I want to see this uh, necktie youth, you know, uh, <laughs> shouldn't have gone to the bathroom, you know, uh, snooze, you lose. Like, that's what I picture. And now when it's a woman, I'm picturing it basically just Roseanne. Um, <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> well, you, you listen up and you listen good. AFI Fest 2015 presented by Sob. <laughs> when you got someone in the theater with their ticket and their card with the number on it and their bag is on the seat and they leave something on the seat that thing stays there yeah 
at, yeah. at best, what if you're not there by the time the movie starts? Maybe then they can take it and put it in. The I did come sound? in slightly into the short preceding the movie. Does this change your answer? The feature had not started. <sighs> that might change my answer a little bit. <laughs> had to make your precious phone call, huh? I didn't care about the short. I'd been driving an hour to get there. Yeah. If I go to use the bathroom in the middle of the movie and I miss five minutes of the movie, shouldn't I get my seat back? Yeah, but I guess if the person who's working the 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 the, the, the volunteer oh no one was in this theater this yeah was... so they didn't see for all they know that bag see I'm, I'm totally turning around on this uh oh because Scott why don't you get out of my house <laughs> yeah I don't know I hang don't on know. I'm I'm re I'm reimagining the person in your seat now now it's, it's just like an no, innocent, but, yeah, just, just an innocent just, just like an eight year old boy <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is this is one of the festival decision to give up my seat this was somebody coming in and just taking off the seat. Yeah. Where did he, where did she put it? Just in front of her. Not in the seat in front of her, just like in, between her legs and the seat in front of her. What's well, now it's really uncomfortable to get to. That's... I had to crawl over people just to get it. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, you, okay. All right. AFI Fest, 20, AFI Fest <laughs> 2015 presented by Audi. You're off the hook. You think so? I'm not allowed to go use the restroom. But this woman now, who, do, who does that? Oh, I don't know. I'm getting yanked back and forth. What I'm saying but is the festival could have sent a staff person in to reseat her. Sure. Well, there, there's, but she's the instinct of there's a bag on the seat. I'm sure it's fine. Either she is knowingly ignoring right. the fact that someone clearly has this seat. And like, and I'm not going to come back for my bag. Exactly. <laughs> or she's such an idiot that it's like, oh, someone left their bag. Well, Time to watch the movie. Yeah. Like, I, it just... So that's the first thing that's wrong. Right. And that's the primary thing that's wrong. Right. And then I think that, yes, I think the festival probably could have... Uh, Stepped could have in. ...done that better. What about... Okay, did you say to a person to your left or right, can you watch my bag? No, and I wish I now did. I've never had to in the past. It's never been a problem, but... I wish well, I had this. This is the kind of thing that makes you just not trust people in the future. <laughs> you just got to cover your ass all the time because no one is going to save you but yourself. You don't have a choice at the festival. You got precious time to take care of bodily functions. So what'd you do? Did you go um, have a drink instead? Uh, I just did, did, did some writing. Oh, okay. Yeah. What did you, you, you write? Like, out like in the... your journal? <laughs> no, I was luckily I had my laptop with okay. me. What's your hangout at AFI Fest? I don't, I mean, I'm rushing between lines so often that usually it's just oh, okay. in line. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think a couple of years ago after uh, Evening Falls on Bucharest yeah. on Metabolism, you and I went to Cabo Wabo. Yeah, we sure did. Has become now. Really? <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I got to know one of the bartenders at AFI Fest. The music uh, in there was so loud, though. It was that time, yeah. That was weird. Um, but no, I uh, I really like the Cabo Wabo at, okay. at, uh, at Hollywood and Highland. <laughs> All right. That was a nice little break. Why don't we move on to yeah. uh, uh, no home movie? Ones. Yeah, Sorry. this is the biggest one. This Sorry, is... I talked over you. Say the name of the okay, movie. Okay, the movie again is No Home Movie, directed by Chantal Ackerman. This is the best new film I've seen since, I think, The Master. Um, wow. Which is, for the record, one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, What's so great about it? <laughs> nothing much um you love it so much why don't you marry it? <laughs> uh it's a hard film to talk about apart from the fact that Chantal ackerman died uh, a little over a month ago at this point um and so this is now effectively her last movie even though tragically in interviews uh at its premiere at the lacrona film festival she said she really wanted to make more films like this in the future and she viewed this as a new uh rebirth but 
that is sadly not to be. Um, so it's hard for me to view it completely apart from that because she's a filmmaker who's meant a great deal to me over the years. I haven't seen that many of her films, but Jean Dielman and uh, J2LL and some of her other short work are just, I mean, they're incredible, incredible movies. And she deserves to be remembered as really one of the landmark directors of all time. Um, and I hope this film will continue to further that as more people see it. But for me, uh, there's no question. It is loosely about, um, it's billed as a film about the death of her mother, but it's really not about that. She shot it over the course of many years, just shooting random footage, not really knowing what she's going to make of it. Um, but the finished film is just about their interactions, either over Skype or in person at her mother's apartment. And it's filmed in the very Chantal Ackerman way of very distant shots, sometimes of just empty rooms, um, and kind of snippets of conversation that it, the film had been touted as this kind of dour, difficult to sit through thing, but it's very lively. Her mother is very funny. Um, they get into some really interesting topics about the immigrant experience. Her mother was in Auschwitz as a young girl. Um, and it gets into the division because that's a hu very huge generational division that's kind of ignored in kind of rightfully so the effort to uh, glorify the survivors of Auschwitz and to hold them up as uh, really strong people, which they were. But in the interim, you're left with the generation after who is has that tragedy over their head, but has no direct experience of it. And uh, Chantal Ackerman has explored this division many times in the past. She made a wonderful movie in the 70s called No Home Movie. Um, that's just her reading letters from her mother while Chantal's living in New York. Um, Wait, I thought this one was called No Home Movie. Shoot, I got the title wrong. The 70s one is called News from Home. Uh, News okay. from Home, okay. Also has home in the title. Um, and news sounds like no. Sure does. Hmm. Um, and so this is a topic, especially between her and her mother, this is something she's been intensely concerned with and really comes to a full fruition here. And by the end, when you start to realize that her mother's health is declining and she's more and more confined inside the apartment and Chantel's sister shows up who seems to spend most of her time making fun of Chantel. Um, and it really gets into kind of the uncomfortableness of family divisions once you get into adult life. And by the time you realize that her mother has died, it never shows it directly, but you just start to feel her absence. Hmm. The total effect of the movie is incredibly powerful. Um, even if I understand why people have a tough time getting through it, it is quite slow. It's two hours, but I really hope people check it out when it comes out in April, because I was very, very moved by it. Hmm. All right, moving on. Moving on to Our Little Sister, um, which is by Hirokazu Koreeda. Oh, I love him. Yeah. What, what have you seen by him? I've seen, uh, well, I haven't seen the the big one that everyone talks about, I think, Still Walking. Is Yeah, it? that was uh, probably still my favorite movie of his, actually. Um, what I've seen, my favorite would be, um, it's is it Nobody Knows or No One Knows? It's one of those two. I, think, I can't remember now. I haven't seen um, it, though. And then he also made uh, a movie, I don't know if it was his most recent one, called I Wish. That was his second to most recent one. Most recent one. <laughs> yeah, okay, he's yeah. fairly prolific. Works a lot, yeah. Um, um, but yeah, nobody knows or no one knows, whichever, whichever one it's called, is, uh, is fantastic. It's um, a fictionalized account of something that actually happened, which is the, um, uh, a single mom leaving her kids alone for months at a time and then living in this apartment and not leaving oh, for wow. fear of being caught um, and sort of... Uh, making a life for themselves in this apartment, like these four siblings, hmm. um, which 
could in could theoretically be the premise of like a sitcom but it's not <laughs> this is not a uh, this is a very heavy uh, drama but it's fantastic yeah he has really good hooks like that actually for a guy who makes kind of subdued dramas i mean i wish is about uh kids who are wishing for the parents to uh I was going to say stop being divorced, but come back together would probably be the, the, the <laughs> you, more you, you phrased it like a kid. Yeah. Would. yeah you right. guys just stop being divorced. Um, they keep, keep going to this train to wish that their parents will get back together. Um, yeah. His last film, like father, like son was about a uh, family that discovers that uh, their son was switched at birth with another. Um, and this one is about, uh, these three sisters who go to the funeral of their father, who is kind of like left them a long time ago, and you get the feeling they haven't really been that much in touch. And while there, they meet uh, the girl who's effectively their younger half sister, um, who they've—I don't think they've ever met before at this point. Um, but by the end of the weekend, they invite to come live with them in uh, the uh, house they all share, that is kind of like a family house. Um, and it's that's about as complicated as it gets. There's some more familiar conflict that's introduced when their mother comes into the picture. Um, but for the most part, it's just about the way these women coexist and the way that uh, this younger girl is kind of dealing with the tragedy of her father passing away, but also not wanting to mention her own mother too much because you know, effectively uh, the man ran away from this first family to be with uh, her mother. And like I said, it's just, it's lightly conflict heavy, but it's so engaging just to watch these women grow up essentially around each other. And they're all at very different stages of their life. The oldest one is kind of settled in her career. The middle one is kind of exploring different options and kind of hooking up with different guys and kind of living the 20 something party life. And the younger one is kind of a hipster for lack of a better term, who's just working at a shoe store and loving every minute. Um, but, and so then, then the youngest one is still in school. Um, but so it gets to the, these different stages and the different things that you deal with. And you can kind of, I'm not quite at the oldest sister's age, but I'm kind of in her place, uh, I guess, economically and career wise. And so it, it's interesting from that perspective, kind of view your own evolution across these different ages and just to watch them bond. I don't It's a really joyful movie and his movies, have, I think, become more joyful as they've gone along. And this is the first to kind of abandon the heaviness of a central premise to just let it be a little more calm. And I think it really works for that. I can't wait to see that one. Yeah. And that's another one that festival tour coming out in the spring. Okay. Um, so after that, I'm going to take a quick drink of water. Okay. I'll vamp. I'm vamping. Enough vamping. So what's in the news today? Enough vamping. That's over. Um, the next one is Hong Sing Su's Right Now, Wrong Then, um, which seeing this movie, especially seeing with an audience, made me realize that I should have submitted at least one of his movies when we did our 50 best comedies list because we had a dearth of foreign films on that list and his mm-hmm. movies are hilarious. Um, he's kind of picked up people who don't speak English aren't as funny as people who do speak English. <laughs> That's what I've heard. <laughs> but uh, English is the funniest language. <laughs> I think it's been proven. Um, but the reason I think his films translate well, so well comedically is that it's more about behavior than it is about particularly clever lines. And so there's no real translation needed. There's all in every one of his movies. There's a scene where someone gets hilariously drunk. Um, and it, watching these movies with a festival crowd is always a blast because people get really into it because usually at a festival you're looking for a little levity. And so even the hint of it really goes a long way. Um, but this one is probably the most Hong Sang Su premise yet because he deals a lot with repetition and familiar circumstances recurring again and again. And this one, 
for half the film, you're following this uh, Korean filmmaker who's marginally successful as he's hooking up with a young uh, artist. And then at the halfway point, it stops and starts retelling itself in a slightly different key. Um, and what sounds kind of like it could be tiring on paper becomes really interesting in execution. Because in the first half, things go disastrously wrong. In the second half, through very small tweaks, you kind of realize the way people become intimate is not through necessarily shared ideologies or like having a lot in common uh, in their lives, but just through weird senses of humor and little quirks that aren't... Whoa, that is my cell phone. Um, <laughs> that, uh, that aren't demonstrably professed, but which can just come up about in the first time you meet somebody. Um, and yeah, like I said, it's very, very funny, especially actually in both halves where things fall apart in the first half and you slowly see her face realize how badly their quote unquote date is going. And the second half where he's doing something that seems like it would be embarrassing, but which she finds absolutely delightful. Um, and unfortunately, it's another Hong Sang Soo movie that won't get distribution. But uh, someday, somehow, I hope people will have a chance to see it. Oh, I'm up. Sure. Uh this is uh, a movie that I didn't know how to feel about when I first saw it. And the more I think about it, the more I um, like is the wrong word. Um, Cause it's a rough fucking movie. Um, but it, it's called son of Saul. It is um, a just wrenching and draining Holocaust movie about um, a guy um, whose name is Saul <laughs> uh, and he does he have any children um well actually watch out he may or may not Ooh. um but he is an, a prisoner at Auschwitz and he is one of the ones who gets to stay alive at least for a few months because he works and by work I mean after people have been herded into the gas chambers he first goes through their clothes for valuables to collect them for for the Nazis and then once the gassing is done he's part of the team that goes in and clears out the bodies um and that's obviously some pretty heavy stuff uh and then one time uh, at the, the first time that we see this happen um there's a boy who's still alive um after the after the gas has dissipated um and of course the nazis just kill him right away but um Saul claims that this boy is his son and that he needs to give him a proper burial, um, which the Nazis aren't going to allow. They're planning to burn it, burn uh, the the body like like they would in anyone else's. So he has to steal the body and sort of navigate the different um, the different stages of Auschwitz, which is essentially a killing factory at that point. So you see different uh, elements of the operation, as it were as he's trying to get um, first get the body out and then find a place to bury it. Um, and it, uh, we talked in the movie journal this week about um, children of men mm-hmm. and it very much has that sort of feel in the sense of uh, a, there's a ton of stuff going on in the background because not only is this Auschwitz where, uh, you know, terrible things are happening all the time. It's also, um, the end of the war, so they're uh, the 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 Germans are sending, emptying out other camps and sending. So there's suddenly a surplus of people to be killed um, coming in, and some of Saul's fellow workers are planning an escape attempt. So it's 
there's a ton of shit going on and he is singularly focused on um this one body to the to the exclusion of the scores and hundreds of people we're seeing bring in to be killed and in some cases seeing uh killed at one point they can't fit enough in the gas chamber so they just line a bunch of people up in front of a pit and shoot them all in the head um and the, but the, the, what's interesting about the uh the approach the of uh, i guess uh, aesthetic approach that the director whose name is laszlo nemes i think um that, that he takes is that he shoots in one one three seven um uh, or you know, I say one three three, but apparently it's one three seven. I can't tell. I can't tell the difference. Um, and he only uses one, from what I understand, one forty millimeter lens the entire time. The 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 sort of um, the 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 lens never changes. So you've got it's almost always a medium to close up close up shot on Saul. It's always handheld, and all these terrible things that are happening are happening behind him and slightly out of focus enough mm-hmm. that you know what's going on and it actually makes it a bit more disturbing um that it's just unfolding behind him uh and it's uh it, it I, I use the word draining it really is heavy and it does take a lot out of you and it uh feel like i needed to sit down for a bit once it was over but um and uh i think my first reaction if you had asked me right after i left the screening i would have said that it's um maybe um more more punishing than it needs to be which sounds like a weird thing to say about the holocaust but it's still a movie um but the more i think about it the more i have distance of from it i really uh i I really appreciate uh what it what it accomplished and what it what it wants to accomplish so son of Saul, there's a review on the website it's uh i it's one that i'm torn on whether or not i should see again because i i so appreciate the the methodology of it and the performance the main guy i forget his name but you know he's his face is the center of the screen for almost the entire like two hours um but it's also like i said it's uh it's heavy stuff so son of Saul. all right uh, next up is uh, Songs My Brother Taught Me by Chloe Zhao. Uh, I will say that AFI Fest does a really good job of frequently programming uh, films by female filmmakers. Uh, I saw six or seven, I think, myself, and they make it really easy to because a lot of the uh, really interesting films that they put on happen to be made by women, which is uh, very refreshing, so I just wanted to mention that real quick. Uh, in this case, I believe it is her debut feature. It is about uh, the Lakota people in the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, um, and it's a really interesting exploration of the poverty that exists in, I'm guessing many, uh, Indian reservations. I don't have firsthand experience, but, uh, the few movies I've seen kind of that explore that milieu frequently come back to that. And it's about this, uh, young guy who's about to graduate high school. He wants to go to Los Angeles and become a boxer. He has a loose plan of sort of moving there with his girlfriend who's going there to be in college. Who will be, So she'll be living in the dorms and everyone's kind of like, so what are you going to do, guy? He's like, I'll figure it out in that young guy kind of way. Um, <laughs> and it, it it's a really uh, well done debut. It's really well accomplished. It's gorgeous to look at. Um, she does some interesting kind of Terrence Malick kind of things of cutting around while there's voiceover going on. But I think she does it pretty effectively. It doesn't feel like a pure ripoff. Um, and I think she really explores the community in a way that is more interesting to me anyway than has been in the past. It's not purely a social justice kind of thing of like, look at these people, what, what must we do for them? It, 
it's just as much about the conflict that goes on within the communities about uh, the way people sabotage themselves and it that thus becomes I think more universal and is a more uh, familiar coming of age story um, yeah I don't have much else to say about it than that but it's a it's a strong movie people should check it out uh, one, one more before our final yeah. for our finale. Uh, next up is the speaking of when evening falls on Bucharest is the new film by uh, going to take a gamble at this uh, pronunciation. Cornelio uh, Prambu uh, is in his film, the treasure. Um, we talked about when evening falls on Bucharest two years ago two now, years even ago. though it only came out in us theaters this year. Um, and I was very skeptical at it at the time, even though I haven't revisited it since I now think I love it. Um, yeah, it's really, it's one of those that once you get past the slow pace and kind of realize what it's up to, it's a pretty amusing film. Yeah. I, I don't know that I'd say I love it, but I think I've had a similar yeah. experience that I, I think fondly of it yeah. now. Um, so I was really looking forward to his new film, which is about, uh, this guy who's kind of down on his luck, but is basically keeping his family afloat. Um, whose neighbor comes to him asking for 800 euro and he's like, I don't have it. And then the neighbor's like, well, I'm, I want the 800 euro to hire a metal detector to look for treasure on my grandparents property. <laughs> he's like, do tell. Um, and it so becomes about the process of them raising the money, hiring a metal detector guy as they constantly refer to him as, and then searching for uh, treasure on this property. And in that Romanian new wave way, it's very slow and very deliberate, but you realize how labor intensive it is to look for treasure in a relatively small property and how many different things can set off a metal detector. <laughs> um, there is a very funny long shot in which the guy is taking the machine around the property and just whirring like crazy <laughs> over every square foot he's covering about this. And then he just comes to the end of this near a rock and he just looks at it and he's like, not making any noise at all. And he just goes zero. <laughs> and then he just keeps looking because there's nothing else he can do. Um, and then they start digging ditches and they're like, well, how far down would you bury treasure? <laughs> about six feet and you realize how far six feet is to dig. <laughs> and so they just keep jumping in this hole that gets bigger and bigger and just keep finding nothing until I won't spoil it from there. But, um, I was very amused by this. I thought it was very funny and really gets into kind of the social awkwardness at various points of them trying to talk around the fact that they don't have a lot of money to begin this venture and dealing with the personalities they encounter and the fact that they don't really know each other that well, but come to, hate each other basically by the end of their journey because one of the guys is a huge asshole. Um, but yeah, it's a very funny movie. All right. We have, we got one more, one more, um, which is too bad that we have one more because one of the, one of the movies I was most looking forward to that neither one of us got a chance to see is tale of tales. The oh, yeah. Theo Garon, uh, film. I wasn't um, too looking. I didn't like Gamora that much though. Uh, did you see reality? No reality is so I know, good. That's right here. So good. All right, uh, so we didn't see Tale of Tales, but we both did see not only one of my most anticipated movies of the festival, one of my most anticipated movies of the fall movie season, Paolo Sorrentino's Youth, and uh, it uh, lived up to what I wanted it to be. Um, I'm not saying it's as good as The Great Beauty, which I named my number one film of 2013, I guess, um, but uh, it is big and impressive and um, not at all but despite being i guess you could make the argument that it is intimate in its themes it is not afraid to remind you that hey this is still a movie and it's big and uh theatrical 
um, and surreal a lot. And what did you think, Scott? I think you hit on my favorite part of the movie, which is that it really feels like a movie. There's a lot of movie going on there. Um, But that's also kind of my problem with it is that it's a lot of big moments that they kind of dip in and out of. And I don't really feel I mean, I really like Michael Caine's performance. I really like Rachel Weisz, but I don't feel like it really builds to much along the way. It's just a lot of high points and they're constantly hitting high points. Now, how much do you like that Michael Caine performance? <laughs> I would say he's worth the awards consideration. Mm. And what about mm, Jane Fonda? How, is she Let's, okay? Please, please. Overrated is Jane Fonda in that Damn movie. Um, no, I think I, she'll clean up at the awards. Though. I think she's great. Um, I'm surprised you mentioned um, Rachel Weisz and Michael Caine. Not that they're not great, but to me, if there's a standout performance in this movie, it's Harvey Keitel. He's very good, too. Because I've... I've talked on this show and, or like in, in, in reviews and stuff before about the, there are certain actors that are so consistently good that they're being good in a movie kind of becomes unremarkable. Like, I think I said that about Michael Shannon, like right. saying Michael Shannon is great in a movie is like, obviously like that's not yeah. enough to get me to go see it. Obviously Michael Shannon's great. He's great in everything. Um, but Harvey Keitel, I felt like I was like rediscovering him as an actor in this movie. It seems, uh, just, he, I, 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 it just felt so um, relaxed, his performance, I guess, which is not something that always can be attributed to Harvey Keitel, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but you also see that he's outwardly relaxed because, and, and maybe this has to do with like living in Los Angeles and seeing this. I, I, I've described Los Angeles or that sort of industry before, this sort of industry, whatever, not that we're a part of it, um, but I do kind of work tangential to the industry. Adjacent. Yeah. Yeah, um, There is this sort of feeling of life in Los Angeles is you have to be working hard all the time, but you also have to look like you're not. You have to look like (laughs) you've already made it and you're relaxed all the time. And I think Harvey Cadillac really gets across that that conflict as someone who is... um, still because he plays a famous director and there's a part of him that's still the hungry young artist that made his name but he's also this part of the establishment of hollywood and and uh, of making these uh movies that are you know you get the impression sort of middle brow commodities uh and all that's going on underneath the surface and i think it's a really fantastic performance yeah i mean it's been a while i mean i'm not following the guy's career too carefully but i think like it's been a while since Harvey Keitel's even gotten a role this interesting yeah. and complicated. Yeah. So it to me it was it did feel like a special revelation because I can't remember the last time I was used to Harvey Keitel even being there, <laughs> much yeah. less being good. Right. Yeah. Um but yeah, you like Jane Fonda in it? Yeah. Oh man, I think she's so baity and so audience friendly and just like she's just there to Cinch the vote of the older women who also feel disrespected by the industry. And when you say oh, Beatty, you mean like I, Ned Beatty? Yeah, that's okay. The one. No, I don't think that's what she's doing at all. Um, I mean, she's making fun of that thing in a way. I mean, her performance needs to be big because it's the. Um, I don't know what we can say. That's spoiler. It's, uh, it's the kind of performance where someone. I'm trying to think of. The, uh, there's a million. Um, equivalent and I can't think of one where someone is referenced throughout a movie and then they show right. up at the end. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that needs to be a big performance. See, I think it needs to be a quiet performance because we've already built them up enough. This is why Orson Welles is so good in third man. He's not doing much. Uh, that, yeah, that, that is a good uh, counter argument. Um, but I think her choices were appropriate as well. 
Um, and I like that she has essentially one scene and then she has one smaller scene that follows yeah. it where she's even bigger. Yeah. <laughs> which oh I, my. <laughs> uh, she's, uh, the movie has a lot of comedy in it. Um, and she's among the funniest. In fact, I think, and I won't say what it is, but I can't wait. I think I said this to you the other day. Like I can't wait till more people have seen youth so that I can talk to them about <laughs> one of Jane Fonda's lines, hmm. which is the funniest line in a movie this year. It's so strange what she says. You saying that reminds me of another line of her, which was, I don't think is the line you're talking about because it's not that funny, but which a guy at my screening loved this line. It's the part where uh, Harvey Keitel is like complimenting her. And she's like, I think you're thinking of the last millennium. And the guy in back, she goes, ha last millennium. <laughs> no, um, that is not the line I'm thinking of. Yeah, I'll, because it's not that funny. Yes, no, it isn't. No, the line I, I'm I, thinking of is when she is she has taken a new role on television, and she is telling Harvey Keitel the things both in her personal life and monetarily that this role will allow her to do. And the one that is the capper is so funny to me. I don't um, remember now. You have to okay, we'll talk about it off. Uh, uh, off mic. Um, but yeah, my wife and I both have like, been, it's been like two weeks. We've been laughing <laughs> about this line, uh, occasionally, um, since then. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of comedy. I can't remember what I was going to say before that. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of see your point that it doesn't, um, go too many places, I guess. Or it, it goes all the places. I don't know. Like I said, right, it's but, just like but keeping it the like same mode of like vaguely inspirational and uplifting and moving and so moving and doesn't have any valleys. It doesn't have any like just kind of bopping about. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of Boz Lerman, so I'm, oh, fair I'm okay to that. <laughs> this is, he's like the art house Boz Lerman here. Um, oh, I like that. Uh, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. It, it does have a lot of big moments and a lot of them I think are very beautiful and a lot of them are, Oh, they um, are they're, I mean, they're hugely accomplished. Uh, but also a lot of them are, are funny. I think one of the, um, in my review, I, um, one of the directors I compared it to is Roy Anderson, who sort of has these like, because there's a lot of tableau in the movie, like right. a lot of, you know, there's the like four main characters of Michael Caine, Harvey Keitel, Paul Dano, and yeah. Rachel Weisz, who was also really good, Paul Dano. Yeah, um, and they do most of the actual like moving and talking. <laughs> the hotel is filled with other guests who are all but like still white yeah. portraits in the background of this thing, and that that sort of has a Roy Anderson feel to me. The the sort of irony or um, the the that dry comedy uh, of that. Anyway, I think it's beautiful, but uh, we got to wrap up because we've been going on a long time, and I got to tell you guys about this Jane Fonda line uh, as soon as we're done. <laughs> Some of us have to scamper off to a Hunger Games screening. Oh, yes, boy. let's yes. do that. Um, so you can find us at battleshipretention.com. That's um, where you can find all reviews of a lot of the stuff that we talked yeah. about today from, both, from from Scott and a few from myself. Um, and you can find this podcast on the other podcasts in the fleet. You can I, I think what I'll do is I will perhaps list all the movies you guys talked about and then link to the reviews that'd be great. within that. If you, yeah. Um, if you want to do that, that'd be great. All right. All right. Um, <laughs> now with the Mustang thing, make sure you list li- link to the AFI one. I don't want to get in the, trouble. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, anyway, uh, you can email us at David at battleship or Tyler at battleship pretension.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Davy pretension. Tyler's on Twitter at Tyler pretension. What's going on at uh, Worth Playing For or More Lesson, or more Than One Lesson? Well, uh, on Worth Playing For, Jen and I talk about Survivor. Okay. Again this week. All right. And then, stop w- asking you that. Yeah, and then More Than One Lesson, uh, we had Jim Rohner, who was on last week. Thanks to, uh, thank you to Jim. Uh, 
we have Jim Roner on to talk about Jacob's Ladder, and it was a, a great deal of fun. Yes, thank you to Jim. That was fun. Um, my other podcast is about television. It's called Hey, Watch This with Paul and David. This week, we are talking about the season, the series premiere of Jessica Jones. Is that what it's called? That's right. Jessica That's Jones and the um, Thanksgiving episode of Fresh Off, Fresh Off the Boat. That's what we're talking about. Who picked that one? I, I did. Um, Interesting. Scott, where can people find you when you work on the internet? First, Fresh Off the Boat's a great show. Is it? Yeah. I've, I, I've seen the pilot. I saw the pilot, and I liked it, but I haven't kept up. It's really good. I thought I had heard that, like, I mean, maybe it got better, but I, I heard a lot of people say that, that the first few episodes were just not very good. Oh, that's sitcom. Okay. <laughs> Run of the mill. Fair enough. Um, online, yes. I'm on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow. Um, at Battleship Retention, of course, and at Criterion Cast, where we most recently talked about uh, some damn movie, but we're going to talk about things to come in a couple of weeks. Okay. And. Now, you, oh. But yeah, Battleship Retention and Criterion Cast, but more Battleship Retention, right? <laughs> that's as, like long, in, as long as we're here, yes. That's the one. All right. I mean, are you an editor at all over there? I Much less at large. Edit myself and some of the podcasts. Mm. Mm. Do you censor yourself? Sometimes I thought, I thought so. Um, <laughs> are we having an earthquake or someone shaking? Oh, that's me. Yeah. That's right. me oh, okay. shaking. Um, and then also Scott was what? on our commentary for the movie psycho. That's true. Uh, which yeah. is available along with the four other horror slasher commentaries. And you can find that at battleship help support the show. Thank you. All right. Uh, thanks at home for listening. We'll get you next time. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.